Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Thank you, Seth. What a great reminder of what it looks like uh, to love people in the name of Jesus in a, in a very tangible way. Um, and I have a question. We got any uh, bylaws experts in here? Bylaw, church bylaws? Got a couple elders in here, right? Right? It is the lead pastor who can fire any staff member, right? Okay. I'm just, just checking. Just checking on that. All right. <laughs> well, hey, what a Sunday to be alive, huh? Uh, it's, uh, it's 80 degrees in late May, which is a gift for us in Phoenix, right? That's awesome. Uh, it's a great day to celebrate our graduates. Congratulations to all of them. And, of course, probably the most miraculous thing of all, the Phoenix Suns are back in the playoffs after 10 years of not being in the playoffs. So go Suns today. Hope you guys will watch them this afternoon. We'll try to get out of here in time so you can get back and watch the game. But, of course... Uh, the most important thing, the thing that we celebrate this morning is we have another wonderful Sunday to meet together, to encourage one another, uh, to hear from God's Word as we turn to the book of Ephesians, and we continue our series called Being the Church this morning. And uh, as we do, I don't know if you have noticed this before, but one of the things that I think is distinctive and really very interesting about the Bible is that as you read through the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation, you may notice that there are a lot of twists in the story. In fact, I think there are so many twists in the plot of the story that uh, in many ways those twists often define the story. Uh, because those twists are often the times where God acts in a certain situation, where God's action shows up, where God shows up for his people or for an individual in an amazing way to kind of turn the shift and the narrative of the story back to his redemptive plan. For instance, this starts all the way back in the garden in Genesis. You have Adam and Eve, and of course, uh, Adam and Eve and their sin brings separation from God. It brings death into the picture. They're cursed and they're sent out of the garden. But before they're sent out of the garden, there's a twist in the story. God comes along, and there's, it's not that this is the end. In fact, he tells them uh, there's a promise that this story now has a twist in it, that God is promising redemption. He is promising that life will come. He is promising, ultimately, that Jesus will come and redeem humanity. We fast forward, we go to the book of Exodus, and what we see is that in Exodus, God plans to deliver his people who had been in Israel as slaves. And the great twist of the story is that against all odds, God delivers his people uh, from the hand of Pharaoh to freedom. A little more forward into the story of the Israelites, we see that there's a place in, in time and history of the Israelites when they're about to be destroyed by their great enemies, the Philistines. And God sends a shepherd boy with a slingshot to defeat the Philistines. A great twist in the story. And then finally, the greatest twist in the whole biblical story is the one that actually defines our salvation. That when the, after the Son of God went to the cross and dies, the great twist is that he rises from the grave three days later. And that's the foundation of our salvation. And so it seems like God really enjoys a good twist in the story especially when those things are necessary to either provide for his people, to protect his people, or to save his people. In fact, you may know this, but there's a phrase in Scripture that's one of the most powerful phrases. We find it happen 40 times, or more than 40 times actually throughout Scripture. It talks about how God brings the twist to the story, how God uh, interjects, how God acts in those situations to completely change the narrative in a way that's redemptive, and it's this phrase, but God. And maybe you've seen this before. 
right? The story's going one way, God's people are being threatened, or there's a, a situation where an individual is finding himself in a very difficult space, and God acts, and it says, but God, and God acts, and then completely changes the narrative of the story, the fate of the story. And I think, and I, may, I mentioned that this morning, because in Ephesians chapter 2, which is what we're going to be looking at here this morning, the first part of that chapter we see what is probably the most important but God phrase that happens in all of Scripture. It describes everything that it means to be a Christian. It describes everything that it means for us to understand the gospel and the implications of the gospel on our lives. And in fact, that's what we're looking at here this morning. And Ephesians has been a great book so far for grounding us in our faith. In fact, it is just one of those books, as we talked about from the beginning, it's one of those books that pound for pound, it's not the longest book, but pound for pound, it has probably the most, uh, the most to say about what it means to be the church, what it means to be a Christian. Of course, we're talking about being the church through this series, so we get to see what the church is supposed to look like, this timeless picture of the church. But then we talked about a couple weeks ago what it means to be a Christian. We saw how Paul was talking about the, the idea or this reality that the identity of being in Christ is central to what it means to be a Christian. Today we're going to talk about and really answer this question. Maybe it's a question that you have asked yourself before or you have been asked before. What is the gospel of Jesus? We see the gospel mentioned repeatedly throughout Scripture. We talk about the gospel all the time in church. But what is the gospel and what are the true implications of the gospel? You know, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which is what we're going to look at here this morning, is one of those places that clearly defines for us what the gospel looks like and really the implications that the gospel of Jesus has in our lives. And as we get back to, into Ephesians today, of course we're starting at the beginning of chapter 2. And I just want to remind us, I think this is important to remember as we read through any one of these books that were originally written as letters, like the letter of Ephesians was. And when we open our Bibles today, of course, for most of our translations at least, you open it up and you've got all these numbers everywhere. You've got chapter divisions and verse divisions and those kinds of things and subheadings that are there. Uh, you probably realize this, but those were not in the original text of the letter, right? Paul didn't write little, little numbers, you know, before every sentence and after every sentence, right? Those were added later by editors to help us reference places in Scripture. Now, why that's important to understand is this, is because when this was written as a letter, it was written and designed as you would read any other letter or any other email that you get. You're supposed to sit down and read this all as one reading. Because the themes all tie together, they connect together. The section that you read one week actually ties to the section that you read the next week. So even though it took us three weeks to get through chapter one, in reality, this letter was designed in its original writing to just be read all at once. And I point that out because as we start into chapter two, there's a tendency maybe for us to think that this is a different, there's maybe a different thought that Paul's communicating. But in reality, chapter two, verse one, is just the line that happens after chapter one, verse 23. In other words, it all goes together. And I, I want to remind us of what we looked at in chapter 1 over the past three weeks, this idea of identity is something that Paul is going to continue to pick up with chapter 2. Right, chapter 1's all been about what it means for us to be in Christ, how that changes everything about who we understand ourselves to be, about what it means to be a Christian. And as we've said over the past two weeks, it's important to remember that the Christian faith is not just about us believing something different, it's not just about us living some different way. It's actually about a very change in who we are. That we are changed at the core of our identity. And we have to understand that to understand exactly what Paul's getting at here in Ephesians 
chapter 2. It's that idea that's really been at the core of the beginning of this book that's then continued here in chapter 2. It's going to be driven all the way through this section. And as we get into this, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 10. Let's go ahead and pull out your Bibles, your devices. It'll also be up on the screen for us to read. But here's the thing, is that what's characterized, what characterizes this chapter is really this set of contrasts here. You're going to see Paul talk about, in other words, what it was like or what it, what it looked like for us to be people who were outside of Christ, in other words, before we knew Christ. And then he's talking to the Ephesians about what it means to be in Christ. And what we're going to see is this contrast that he is creating. And by contrast, he is helping us to see this stark difference between our identity outside of Jesus and our identity inside of Jesus. And, and I think one of the biggest things that it's helping us to see is how powerful and central and important it is for us to understand what has changed since we've come to faith in Christ and what changes the moment we come to faith in Christ. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, starts this way. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, were all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So those first three verses then describe what it looked like before we knew Christ. And then in verse 4, what we see is that all-important phrase, but God. And this is where the contrast switches. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, we, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, have you ever had the kind of experience where you felt like you had something really urgent and important to say, and, 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 and you said it, and you said it so quickly and with such urgency because you wanted to make sure that the person you were talking to didn't interrupt you, right? You wanted to make sure you got it all out and that they didn't stop you because what you knew is that you needed to get everything out so that they could understand exactly what you were trying to communicate to them. Well, that's actually what's happening in what Paul is writing here in Ephesians chapter 2, believe it or not. Because in the original Greek, verses 1 through 7 make up one sentence. It's one long, run-on sentence. It's basically a, a grammar teacher's nightmare. right? He writes out this long sentence, and what you get the feeling of, what you realize is that Paul is so urgently communicating this all as one statement deliberately, so that we will see, first of all, the urgency and importance of understanding exactly what he's saying, because if we don't get this, right, nothing else really matters. This is central to what it means to be in Christ, the gospel of Jesus. It's right here. So verses 1 through 7, he's explaining all of this. And I think also what's amazing to see is that he's talking about the contrast between, of course, being before we were in Christ and now being in Christ. And he puts it all together in one statement. With the hinge point being, but God has done this and switched it all. 
And so what you see is in the middle of this big, long, run-on statement, the contrast that unites these two things together, but then also at the same time drives this gulf between who you used to be in Jesus and now who you are in Christ. I mention that because I think it's, the, it's this same big thought displaying the change of these contrasts here that we see throughout here. I think we see five big contrasts here. And with all the contrasts, Paul's not only just trying to overwhelm us with this, because you read through it and what you're thinking to yourself is, I think in some ways you see sons of disobedience, children of wrath, right? In some ways it almost seems like Paul's repeating himself. But what he's doing is just stacking all of these characteristics of what it looked like to be before, but before Jesus and now in Christ. And just when we get to that point where you're like, okay, Paul, I get it, he stacks another one on. He's helping us to see this is how important it is that you get this and that you understand it. In fact, it's so important that I want to I want to parse for us visually what this looks like and show us the distinctions or the contrasts that are there. There's a lot of contrasts in this. I I was able to identify at least five that are there as far as a contrast and then a corresponding or a statement and then a corresponding contrast of being in Christ. So he says in verse 1, Before Christ we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But in Christ we have been made alive together with Christ. Before Christ, we were following the course of this world, according to verse 2. But in Christ, we are raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Before Christ, we were children of wrath, in verse 3. But in Christ, we are saved by grace. Before Christ, we were sons of disobedience, according to verse 2. But in Christ, we are created in Christ Jesus. Before Christ, we live by the desires of the flesh in verse 3, but in Christ we are walking now or living in good works. Now, notice that. And all of what this does here is bring us all the way back to who we already are in Christ. We're going to leave that up for just a minute. Because those things in the right-hand column are not things that, uh, that, that, that we're being told we need to earn. They're not carrots on a stick that says, for those of you who really persevere in Jesus, for those of you who are, who are super Christians, you are the ones who get to be these things. This is what every Christian is characterized by the moment they come to faith in Christ. That when you come to Christ, all of that stuff in the right-hand column is all of who you are. This is your identity. And of course, at the beginning of verse 1, Paul says, and you, making this intensely personal. This is about who we are in Jesus. So the flow of this statement kind of from verse 1 to 7, it shows us the importance of these identities, the importance of this contrast, how powerful it is for us to be in Jesus, how meaningful and important that is, how central that is to the gospel. And then we get to verses 8 and 9 which are probably the most well-known verses in all of the book of Ephesians. And, and, and in these two verses, what Paul is telling us is this is how God does this. He does this by his grace and mercy on our behalf, through what Jesus has done. That salvation is going all through Jesus, that he has done this in his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And because of his great grace and mercy on our behalf, then we're challenged to respond by receiving this as a gift of faith, right? That's what we do. We're called. This is our response. This is what God has done. And he hands this to us like a gift so that we receive it by faith. That's our calling. That's what we do. That's our response. And verses 8 and 9 
uh, well-known and often repeated, of course, for good reason, because together they're one of the best descriptions of what we have in the Bible about what saving grace is all about and how to respond to that saving grace by faith in Jesus. Now, as great as verses 8 and 9 are, and they are hugely important, what happens sometimes when we talk about these verses, we forget about verse 10. <laughs> it's almost like it stops at verse 9 and then there's nothing else. But verse 10 is actually just as important as verses 8 and 9 are as far as tying us to these implications of the gospel. And so I want to read verse 10 again for us where this section ends that we just read. Paul says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, what does the word created mean right here? What is Paul referring to? Is he talking about the fact that we have all been created by God? I mean, is this a reference back to maybe the Genesis creation account here? That we were created as human beings to kind of do good things, this good work aspect of it? Um, I think it's probably an accurate statement to say that we were created in God's image to do good things. But that's not exactly what Paul's referring to here. In fact, what he's talking about is this idea of being created in Christ Jesus. Notice that phrase there. We are created in Christ Jesus. This is much more about what the Bible calls a new creation than it is necessarily about us just being created at some point as human beings. This is specifically what happens when we come to Christ. A new creation, a recreation aspect happens to us. Elsewhere in a place like 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul explains the reality of the new creation. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Maybe you prefer the language of being born again. We get that from John chapter 3, verse 3, when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if you know the story from John chapter 3, who is it that Jesus is talking to when he says these words? He's talking to a man by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a religious leader in Israel at the time. He was a guy who knew the scriptures, he knew God's word backwards and forwards. He was a Bible scholar who basically spent all of his time teaching God's word to God's people. He was also a guy who knew God's law inside and out. He probably lived as religiously a perfect life as any of us could hope to live. He lived directly by the law, by what God said looked like, uh, looked like living by the law, right? And Jesus looks at him after all of this, knowing all of this about him, and says to him essentially, you are not saved. You are not one of God's people. It doesn't matter how much you know about God and his word or how much you do for God, unless you are born again as a new creation in Christ, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom itself is a new creation reality. And the only ones who can live there are new creation people. And I think this should cause us to perk up and take notice as we see this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. Because what this is telling us is that the way that we know that we are in Christ is that we have been made a completely new creation. That's what matters in the end. So you can say all day long that you believe the right things about God, and you know the truth, and you defend the truth, and that you've been a church member for 30 years, and that you've served in this place and that place, and you've taught Bible studies, and maybe you even went to seminary. Nicodemus did all those things and more. 
And yet Jesus looks at him and says, you're still outside of God's kingdom. Now, I think this highlights how deep this new creation phrase shows how, or this, this understanding of new creation shows how deeply we change in Jesus. Because here's the thing, if you were going to describe somebody who completely changed, I don't know that there's any other more radical uh, English words than to say that that person was born again, or that person was recreated. You might say, like, this person's so different. I, I knew this person five years ago, and now I see him again five years later, and it's like they've been completely born anew, or completely completely born differently, right? This, it's, this, it's, it's this understanding that being born again and being a new creation is as radical as you can get as far as change in somebody's life. And yet, this is what the Bible is using to explain what it means for us to be in Christ, what it means for us to come to faith. Klein Snodgrass says this in terms of how real faith completely changes us versus what we might often settle for when we think about faith. It's a challenge to what does faith in Jesus really mean. He says this, Faith has an adhesive quality to it. It binds the believer to the one who is believed. Salvation does not come from believing ideas or from an emotional decision, but from being bound to Christ. I appreciate that phrase, emotional decision. As I grew up as a, a good Southern Baptist, <laughs> and I made probably hundreds of emotional decisions as I was younger. I was probably, in fact, if, it, if, if salvation was based upon an emotional decision, I was probably saved at least 25 times when I was a kid, right? Because every message was like, walk the aisle and make this decision for Jesus. And I was many times just so emotional, like, yeah, this is, this is it. But, of course, none of those things actually took root. Instead, what we find in Scripture is that being a Christian is not about emotional decisionism, as important as those milestones can be in our lives. It's not just about emotional decisionism. Look, Snodgrass continues. He says, look, whereas in Paul's thought, faith is life-changing and productive of good deeds, for much of the church, change is desirable with faith, but not necessary. And this phrase, not by works that we see here, means one does not have to really do anything. But a decision the right prayer prayed is, is an, that all that matters is a decision. The right prayer that's prayed, and that's enough to go to heaven. How did faith in Christ get perverted into mere thoughts about Christ? How did all the focus get placed on getting into heaven? The faith that many people profess is nothing more than a false, groundless hope of escaping judgment. We do nothing to gain our salvation and life with God, but such a joining to God does everything to us. I want to clarify that, right? The reality is that, yes, it is Jesus' work on the cross that saves us from the judgment of God. But the reality is what he's pointing out here is that just a decisionism that's based upon me escaping punishment is not the, is not the biblical idea of what it means to be in Christ. Not what it means to be a Christian, that faith adheres us to Jesus. Changes everything about who we are. And it's not just about something that's out there one day, but it's about who I am even now today. Which brings us back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Because when you join new creation to good works, what you see is that these good works are the natural outflow of a person who has been made new by Jesus. Right? Verse 10, of course, is this reference to new creation. And then Paul says that as a new creation, we walk in these good works that God has prepared for us beforehand to live in. 
And when you join good works to our identity in Christ, what you begin to see is a clearer picture of the good works aspect that Paul's talking about. In other words, he's not just talking about good things in general that we may do. He's talking about good works specifically that are defined by what it means to look like Jesus. He says this. He says, that, he says essentially that what these good works now have is a definition. When you put it together within Christ, these good works are defined by one thing. They look like who Jesus is. How do we know something is a good work? It simply looks like Jesus. How do we know something is a sin? A sin is something that doesn't look like Jesus, or it's antichrist. And this relates to questions maybe that we often may ask ourselves, or we may wonder as Christians. How much are we really supposed to look like Jesus as Christians? We ask ourselves that question probably from time to time. If you've been in church at all, this is probably not the first time you've heard, as a Christian, you're supposed to look like Jesus. We talk about it all the time. But to what degree are we supposed to look like Jesus as Christians? Does that mean that, uh, and I think another question about this is related to why so many people who claim to be Christians maybe don't look like Jesus. Or even this question, maybe you've thought this before, why is it that some people who don't even claim to follow Jesus actually look more like Jesus than some people who claim to be Christians? That's a tough one, right? Now, I'm not going to be able to answer all those questions this morning. It's beyond the purview of what we're talking about. But getting to the clearer point of all this, it illustrates this point that is clear from this section, that the new creation reality really redefines why good works are essential for a person claiming to be in Christ. Not that we earn our salvation by good works, but that our salvation has been earned for us, and that identity so changes us that we can't help but live as people who display the character of Christ. Because we have the very person of God by his spirit in us. Now, and of course, living out as a new creation points out the contrast of who we were versus who we are. So where do we start to answer this question then? What does it look like to look like Jesus? And I think there are a lot of places in the New Testament we could go to. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The New Testament, as you read through it as a Christian, book of Ephesians is a great example of this. The New Testament is all about reminding us who we are of, of who we already are in Jesus. And so you see it all over the New Testament, but I think a really great place to start if you're asking what does it mean to look like Jesus is in a place like Galatians 6. In Galatians 6, we find a list of what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. You may know this list, you may have heard this list, you may have this list memorized. But what I want to do as we read this, I'm going to read this for us in just a minute from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. And I want to challenge you to really make this personal as we read through this. And this is how I want you to do it. We're going to read this part that says, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and there's going to be a list of all these characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, which are really characteristics of who Jesus is. But what I want you to do when we read, but the fruit of the Spirit is, I want you to put in the phrase, in and then your name. So I would read it this way. But the fruit of the Spirit uh, in J is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Okay? So I want to read that, and let's read it together and make this personal. But the fruit of the Spirit in is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. How did that feel to put your name in there? A little bit uncomfortable, a little bit awkward maybe? Maybe it was encouraging? I think it becomes a little bit awkward because we aren't used to thinking our, of ourselves in these terms. 
But look, when Paul says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places and have all the spiritual blessings, as he says in Ephesians chapter 1, that all of those are ours, I think that's what this looks like on a practical level. That this is who we are in Christ. Those of us in Christ are now the workmanship of Jesus. New creations created to do good works. Not just good things in general, but specifically the things that we couldn't do before we knew Jesus. Now, you might ask the question, well, can't we be humble and patient and kind and gentle and loving and all of those things without Christ? I mean, we probably know a lot of people who are not Christians that can be humble, they can be patient, they can be kind, they can be loving. And certainly, that's true. We can see that. It's an aspect, I think, of common grace, which is a theological term that explains basically, you know, what it means for us all to be created as human beings in the image of God. We do reflect the goodness of God from time to time. But I think in Christ there is a difference. That we actually become humble, patient, kind, faithful, loving, good, all of those things. The very minute that we are joined to Jesus. So in Christ, you are patient. In Christ, you are actually the embodiment of patience. Now, your spouse may not agree with that this morning. But that's, that's who you are. You are the embodiment of all of these things, of love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Among the other things that are listed about what it looks like to have godly character, you are the embodiment of humility in Christ. Now, does that mean that, of course, we have to show this fruit all the time or our salvation is in question? I mean, it's not a, no, it's not a matter of just kind of keeping up our fruit levels so that we can be assured that we are saved in Jesus. But really, what this does is show us that the fruit of Jesus shines through our lives as Christians the more and more closely we are connected to him. Now, sometimes that fruit shows really clearly in your life. Other times, in the same person, it doesn't show as clearly. Sometimes in some people, they really display the fruit of kindness or the fruit of patience in their lives. And you can see it. I think one of the beautiful things about being in the church is that we can see different aspects of the fruit of Christ being displayed in different people who are in Jesus. You get to see, right, somebody who, you know, may not be the kindest person, but they got self-control down, right? And you can see the self-control in their lives. Or you might see love or joy or peace, depending on the life that you look at. Now, I sometimes think about it this way and our lives individually. The first house that my wife Katie and I ever bought was out in Chandler. And it was the first house we bought, it was a small little house. I miss that house for a lot of reasons, but it's not the kind of house that you can actually put six people in, so it doesn't work for us anymore. But I loved it when we were there. We were just starting a family. And, uh, but one of, the, one of the things I loved about that, the best feature of that house was actually the backyard. Because the guy who originally built the house and bought the house the first time was, uh, was a horticulturalist. I'm so glad I said that word correctly. Um, I struggle with that sometimes, and depending on how you pronounce it anyway. So, um, but, he, but if you don't know who that is, it's a person who kind of takes care of plants and understands plants, plant life, and that kind of thing. And so he had laid out the backyard in such a way that he was able to keep plants alive and blooming and thriving that I had really never even seen in Arizona before. I grew up in Arizona, specifically in Phoenix, and I had never seen some of these plants before in the state of Arizona. But the way that he planted them, the way that he took care of them, you could tell that he planted them based on where the sunlight would be at certain times of the day, realizing that there were some plants who couldn't really take direct sunlight. He would actually put shade trees over those plants so that they could grow correctly. And then, of course, the way that he took care of them allowed those things to survive in an area where they wouldn't normally survive. 
And so I buy this house thinking to myself, I'm just going to have this wonderful backyard garden and it's going to be full of life and flowers and all these things you, you see in Hawaii or Oregon but you never see in Arizona. And it took me six months to realize that that's, you, you can't just passively allow those things to survive and to continue to believe that they're going to survive. In fact, a lot of them died, several of them died within six months. But after six months, what I realized is that uh, I could still keep the fruit trees alive. And the fruit trees were actually the best part of the yard. It was located on one side of the yard, and he had planted all these fruit trees. Um, and again, some fruit trees that you never see really in the Phoenix area, at least surviving and thriving. Um, we had, of course, the lemon trees, the orange trees, the citrus trees. Those are everywhere in Phoenix. But our lemon tree was like 12 feet tall, and it put out so much fruit that it took us like 15 to 20 minutes every single day to just go out there and pick up all the lemons on the ground because it could dump lemons all the time. It was the biggest lemon tree I've ever seen in my life, and it was hugely healthy. And then there were other plants or other trees like, um, well, we had, we had blackberry vines and grape vines, uh, which I killed within a couple months. But um, we had these other trees as well that I didn't see a lot. I don't see a lot of in Phoenix. You don't see, I don't think, a lot in Phoenix, which is we had an almond tree. We had a Granny Smith apple tree. Like the apples, the apples that are the big green ones, my favorite kind of apple. And we had an Asian pear tree back there, right? And so um, what I figured out is that, uh, again, it was his ability not only to keep those things alive, but the way that he cultivated those, those trees, the way that he fertilized those trees, the way that he helped keep them alive actually allowed those trees to bear fruit. Because once it came to me, those trees were alive, but they weren't actually bearing fruit. Uh, the Granny Smith apple tree, the biggest apple I ever got off that tree was like the size of a large acorn. And I don't know if you've ever eaten an apple that size. We tried to eat an apple that size. It's disgusting. It's like, it's one of the grossest things you'll ever taste. And I still don't know what an Asian pear looks like because I never saw one on that tree. But in, the, but in the end, I think this is sometimes really what this looks like in our lives. Our lives are often like that backyard that as Christians, if we are in Christ, the trees have been planted. They're there. The minute we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit plants all those trees, the tree of kindness, the tree of goodness, the tree of patience, the tree of love, joy, all of those things. They are there. Now, depending on how we cultivate those things, then those things, if they're healthy, begin to produce fruit. And as we talked about last, or a couple weeks ago with Jesus' parable of the vine and the branches, the closer we draw to the vine, the further we draw into our identity in Christ, the healthier we become and the more fruit we bear. We didn't plant the trees. We didn't give them life. God did that through Christ in us. And we don't produce the fruit ourselves. However, there are things that we can do to cultivate our lives in a way that display the beauty of the fruit of Christ in our lives. So that addresses the good works part of what Paul's talking about here. I want to finish with the time that we have left talking about this question of then the other side of this, sin and the Christian. What happens when we fall back into that left-hand side of the contrast? What happens when our lives looks more like walking in the world or walking as sons of disobedience versus people who are walking in the good works of Christ. Why is sin so heinous for the Christian? Why are we told to avoid temptation and sin in our lives? I think one of the most stark answers we get to that question comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is writing in this place to, of course, the Corinthian church, and he's writing specifically in this section to a group of men who had come out of the, the, the culture of Corinth, which was very sexually immoral. 
And in a lot of cases, these men had been used to actually engaging with prostitutes. Corinth was known for its prostitution, and for a lot of these men who had come into Christ for a long time in their lives, that's just how they knew what to do, or they, they, it was just culturally accepted. And so now they're Christians, they're in the church, and they're still engaging in prostitution with women um, in the city. And so Paul's writing specifically to correct this behavior. Now, what I want us to see here is that when Paul addresses this issue of these Christian men engaging with prostitutes, he's not just saying, look, it's dirty what you're doing, and it's evil, and it's immoral, which of course it could be all of those things, but notice he doesn't say that. Instead, he describes this behavior in, in terms of a relationship to Christ, what the Christian's relationship is to Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15 says this, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that when he is joined to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Did you catch that? And Paul says, look, the one who is a part of the body of Christ joins the body of Christ with what he does. So when he sins, sin is not just a bad thing or an immoral thing or a boo-boo in some way. It's, and it's not even just behavior that's displeasing to God. It is actually heinous in the sense that it joins the body of Christ to that sin. Now, so how closely does Paul believe then that we are joined to Jesus if he's using that kind of language? Now, we don't want to press the metaphor too far. Right? What we're saying, we're not saying that when we sin, we are causing Jesus to sin or that Jesus is participating in our sin. That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying, and what this is saying, is that something that has been set apart for Jesus as a new creation, a member of his body, of which you are if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, is given way to the corruption of sin. Where the Spirit is recreating us, where we are recreated in Christ, what sin does is decreate the reality of who we are in Jesus. It's contrary to who we are. And I think this changes the whole reason why we should avoid sin. And I think it helps us to realize, you know, you may often hear this said before, maybe you've said this as well when it comes to sin. You know, I'm just a sinner and that's what I do, I sin. I don't really think that's a biblical idea. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. I mean, there's Paul's struggle with sin in Romans 7, but that's not necessarily Paul saying, I'm a sinner and so I just sin, that's what I do. I mean, notice that when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he doesn't say, to the sinners in Ephesus. Right? He says, to the saints, the holy ones in Ephesus. This is who you are. You are in Christ. And here's why this matters. That, this, that if we see it from that perspective, to sin is to actually act against our very nature in Christ. It's not acting with my nature as a sinner. It's acting against my nature as a saint. Marcus Johnson says this, Paul does not soft-pedal sin as if it were a mere moral lapse. He thinks of it as a contradiction to our existence. We do more than transgress in our sin. We transgress the reality of our existence in Christ. Sin is horrific and incredible in the saints because it's an inversion of the reality that we have been recreated as holy images of God in Christ. We will never take sin seriously enough until we realize that it is an utterly absurd and outrageously foolish contradiction of reality. 
Now chew on that, state, that last statement for a while. That'll take us a week to really unpack. But the point of this is, is that this is not just a statement about sin management. Right? Some sins that I deal with, some sins that I put up with, and those kind of things, but I avoid really the worst sins. What we're being told here is that sin, in and of itself, is a contradiction in reality. That when I sin, it might not be prostitution, but it might be pornography, lying, stealing, gossiping. It's a violation of who I am in Christ. I don't know how that hits you, but as I think about this, it makes me take my sin a little bit more seriously than just kind of having a general sense of guilt or shame about some things that I did that maybe God's not completely happy with. Or some things that I violated that's a behavior that I shouldn't do because God told me not to do it. When Scripture talks about why sin should be avoided, it's from the perspective of this is no longer who we are in Christ. Don Carson says, There is no one who is more miserable than the Christian who for a time hedges in his obedience. Just kind of allows those little sins to creep in because he does not love sin enough to enjoy its pleasures and he does not love Christ enough to relish holiness. This is the wonderful contrast of the gospel and how it affects our lives. That in that one wonderful phrase that we see happen over and over again in Scripture, that phrase, but God, God has changed everything about who we are from the very core of who we understand ourselves to be. And one of the things that the contrast reminds us of is the necessity of repentance. We can't remain on the other side of the contrast for very long if we are really in Christ. Because we'll be called back to repentance. Repentance is turning away from that other side of the contrast, that left side, who you used to be before Christ, and turning back towards Christ. So that this becomes more of who we are. Not just what we do, but who we are. And one of the ways that Jesus condemned the religious people of his day is by telling them that they weren't bearing the fruit of repentance. Jesus said to the religious leaders one time, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So how do you know you're a Pharisee? Well, you may believe the right things, you may read God's word, you may say the right things, but you don't repent. And how do you know you're a Christian? You repent. Not just that you're repentant in your feeling, but you are repenting. You've repented and you continue repenting as a fruit of everyday life in living in Christ. It's a part of who we are and what we do. And that repentance is the recognition that sin is nothing to be played with as a minor moral lapse, but it's the action of decreating who I am now, who I am in Christ. Now, in the end, I'll close by saying this. Um, you know, when we read something like this from Ephesians chapter 2, of course, we have the centrality of the gospel. I think it was Martin Luther that said we have to be preached the gospel every single day because we forget the gospel so easily. This is what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 2. He is preaching to those who know Jesus the gospel again. Right? And, and certainly, you know, this can be read by someone who doesn't know Jesus and it might call them to faith, but the immediate context of this is Paul writing to the saints in Ephesus. And so, in some ways, yes, it could be repent sinner, but in reality, it's repent saint. Repent, holy one. Repent, separate one, whom God has made you again as a new creation in Christ. And that repentance is a gift because it calls us forward. It calls us forward into all that God has designed us and created us to be in Christ. 
And so repentance is a gift. It's, it's given to us that as much as salvation is given to us by God's grace and mercy, the ability to repent is given to us by God's grace and mercy as well. So let's pray. Well, we, uh, Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you have uh, made us new. And we, we realize, Lord, that we don't fully understand what that means all the time, either because um, it, it is a mystery, as you have told us in Ephesians. And so there's a sense to where we are trying to figure it out, and you reveal it to us more as we walk closer with Jesus, as we walk in Christ by the Spirit. But, Lord, there is a lot in that to which we are trying to understand and we don't fully grasp. And so I pray for those of us who are either new in Christ or we've been Christians for a long time, but we're really kind of wrestling with this idea of what does it look like for me to really embrace my identity? What does it look like for me to fully be in Christ? Because there are so many other things in this world that are easy to do, that, that easily distract me, that really fight to define who I am. There are so many things in my heart that come out that want to define who I am. And so, Lord, as we've prayed over the first couple weeks and we continue to pray this morning, would you draw us deeper into the identity that we have in Jesus? Would these words become life for us and a challenge to us, but also an encouragement to move forward? And that as bad of a rap as the word repentance gets, Lord, that we would be people who embrace that word for what it means. That because of your grace and mercy, we can turn back from all of that other stuff that we used to be so that we can become again new in Christ. That we turn away from the old and that we embrace what is new and what you are making new in us. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you above all for why it is that you acted in this way. As you tell us in Ephesians 2, it's out of your great love for us and by your great mercy that you have saved us and brought us to yourself in Jesus. So it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. So don't despair, Christian. God has given you everything that you need by His Spirit to live how He calls you to live. He has indwelt you by the very person of the third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit. And so be encouraged today. Um, if you uh, have anything that you would like us to pray for, we, uh, we have our prayer partners who are located here on the left-hand side. So if, if you need to spend some time praying for something that's going on in your life, if you just want to follow up with something maybe that hit you this morning as we were worshiping, they're there to pray with you. We also have prayer cards that are located on our prayer table as you leave. If you fill out one of those cards and drop it in the offering stands as you leave, we'll make sure that that gets to the right place where we pray for those things weekly as staff members, uh, as a prayer team, and as elders. We consider it a privilege and a joy to join with you in prayer. So whether it's for you or a family member or a friend, whoever it may be, write down that prayer request, drop it in the offering stands as you leave here uh, this morning. So uh, hope you have a great afternoon. Enjoy this 80-degree day that we've got in front of us. And go Suns! Have a good week.
Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.